Hey, you're listening to Guat Rocks, God, the World, and Other Things. I'm Kenny Price, your host. Our mission, you got it, say it with me, advancing equilibrium in the midst of an agitated world. This is Season 15, Episode 315, Title: Other Things with John Rawlinson. John Rawlinson is the General Manager of the Banner of Truth Trust, a nonprofit organization with a home office in Edinburgh, Scotland, UK and an office in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, here in the States. John shares his journey on how he went from a young boy who read books published by the Banner of Truth Trust to become its general manager now for the past 24 years. The story of the trust and John's personal life journey will encourage and inspire you to pursue your passion and calling in life by faith. From the beginning, this world-impacting publishing house has been based on vision first with the provision of God's blessing to follow and support of the God-given vision. So here we go, Other Things with John Rawlinson. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm Kenny Price, the host of Other Things With, and I am so excited about this episode. I've been communicating with our guest today by email for some time, and uh, I'm excited to finally meet him face-to-face. And what's doubly exciting, this is my first international show and we're going all the way across the pond to the uk and we have with us today john rawlinson who is the general manager for the banner of truth trust welcome john thank you for having me it's a joy to be with you and a pleasure to meet you well i tell you i was concerned just to be honest i come from texas i don't know if you can tell from my accent i live here in nashville tennessee but with you being in in scotland and, uh, you know, some of the Scottish brogues sometimes I thought, I hope I can understand your accent. And I also hope you can understand mine. So uh, <laughs> tell me a little bit about yourself, because are you from Scotland? Because in one of our emails, you said that um, that you're not from Ed- Do you pronounce it Edinburgh? Uh, so we pronounce it Edinburgh, but a lot of people have trouble with that outside of this country. Um, most English people are okay with that, but when you get much further afield, a lot of people have trouble pronouncing Edinburgh. Um, but no, I'm, I'm not a local. I've lived here now for about 24 years. Um, so I have children who were young when we moved here. And some of my children speak with quite broad Scottish accents. I have grandchildren, some of whom live in, uh, in Edinburgh, uh, and they are developing Scottish accents too. Uh, but my accent is quite distinctly English. So if, if you're any good at differentiating accents in the UK, you'll spot mine is very English. Uh, it's not a Scottish accent. So, you know, I, I can tell you're from Texas because I can just about detect that. Um, <laughs> I guess uh, your, your listeners will be going, oh, of course he's from Texas. Um, that's so obvious. So, yes, you're out of state. I'm out of country, so to speak. So, yeah. But um, as I say, we've been up in Scotland now for about 24 years. Well, so I understand that you, um, uh, this is your anniversary this month, correct? 24th anniversary with the Banner of Truth Trust. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. I started in 1999 in May um, with the Banner of Truth and uh, have been here ever since. So, yes, 24 years this month. Now, looking at your bio, and and I appreciate the fact I, I reached out to John and I said, Hey, how can we tell people how to connect with you? And John said, I really don't do social media, which is probably really a good thing. Uh, But he does have a LinkedIn account. So I checked out and your background is actually in uh, mechanic. Is it mechanical engineering? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. How did you make the connection from mechanical engineering to the head of a a publishing company? I mean, which you do more than that, but but predominantly publishing. Sure. Um, it, I'll give you the short version. So there's a long version and a short version. But yes, yeah, so I trained as a mechanical engineer. That's what I studied at university. Um, I'm a chartered mechanical engineer. I worked in the automotive industry and then moved really into engineering software. And before coming to the Banner of Truth, I worked for a company in Cambridge in England. Um, it was a, I suppose you'd call it a high tech software uh, organization. Um, I was the chief executive there. Um, we sold the business to an American firm, and uh, I worked for about another six months after the business was sold. 
but I, I didn't feel that it was what I wanted to do long term and I was in a little bit of a, a quandary as to what to do next. And I had one or two options. I had the offer of a position in, in Rhode Island, actually, in the States. Um, there was some consulting work that I'd been doing previously that I could possibly go back to, um, sort of consulting engineering and sales and marketing consulting as well. Um, but I was actually visiting my father and talking about things with my dad. And he said to me, well, have you seen the Banner of Truth magazine this month? And I said to him, well, actually, no, I haven't. Why? He said, well, there's a job being advertised at the Banner of Truth. I think you maybe want to think about that as an option as well. So, you know, have a think. So I got a magazine and looked at it. And sure enough, there was a job advert in there. And uh, I thought about it long and hard and talked about it with my wife. We talked about it with uh, pastor at church and the elders at church and we prayed about it in the end I thought you know what this is something that I, I'm going to apply for um, the banner of truth as an organization had featured in my life from a very young age really so my father was a pastor um, oh. he uh, he bought banner of truth books he did some work in fact for the banner of truth in the late 60s and I can remember as a child sitting in my father's study and looking at his bookshelves. Um, and at the time, we were, the banner that is, were producing the works of John Owen. And uh, on the back of the works of John Owen, the this is actually one of the works of Owen here. There's the banner logo, this little George Whitfield man, and it says, you know, the works of John Owen in a volume number. And as a child of about probably six years old, there were two things that fascinated me. One was this number on the back, and the other was John, because that was my name, and I could read my name. So here in my father's study was a number of books with my name on the back, and this funny-looking little man at the bottom. And every so often, there'd be another one arrive. So as a child, I was you know, learning to count, so I was learning to count the volume numbers on the back. Um, and the banner produced those books over a, a, a number of years during the 60s. And as I say, every so often I'd be sitting in that study, had a particular armchair, I used to love sitting in. It was one of these armchairs with sort of uh, wings that come outside. And as a little kiddie, you could sit in there and kind of curl up and feel it was like a safe place in that study. Um, and there I was looking at the works of John Owen appearing on the shelves. So there were sort of memories, I suppose, from that. The first Christian books I ever bought were Banner of Truth books. Um, I bought one uh, when I think I was about 12 or 13. Um, it, was, um, it was actually the autobiography of Charles Spurgeon in the early years. It's this book here. I happen to have that on my desk again. Um, and um, a year later, I bought volume two uh, of, that, uh, of that set. Uh, and then a little bit later on in life, when I was a teenager, late teens, I started going to the Banner of Truth Youth Conference. It's something that, that we've been doing for a good number of years. We still do a youth conference every year here in the UK. Um, and that, again, was very influential in my life and in my Christian life in particular. Um, so I had benefited and my family had benefited from the work of the Banner for many, many years. and so. Seeing the job, um, to me, it was something, I guess it was something more than just a job. Um, I was at a point in life where the kind of work I was doing was senior management level work in organizations. Um, and I felt, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with business. I, I think business is perfectly fine. Um, it's a good thing. And I think you can have good Christian approaches to doing business. I think that's good. But I was just at a point where I felt if there was something else I could do that uh, would put something back into an organization I had benefited from, there was a Christian organization that was doubly helpful and important and, and uh, key to me, then I was interested in pursuing that. Um, so I applied for the job um, and was interviewed by the trustees and everything went on from there. Well... So it's encouraging your testimony then is that uh, you're not only the leader of the organization, you were actually a consumer uh, from an early age and impacted by 
uh, the ministry of, of the trust uh, yourself. So um, well, it makes you a double champion, doesn't it, for the for what you're doing? <laughs> yeah, I, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I, I love what I do. I love the work of the trust. Um, I love the books we produce. Um, and it, and it's, I suppose, yes, it's because I've been impacted personally by those things. Um, people I know, friends I have, my parents were impacted too by the work of the trust. Um, and yeah, so I, I love what we do. Um, and a lot of it is because of the impact it's had on me personally. So it, it's, it's close to my heart, I suppose. Um, we, we, we used to have, um, here in the UK, when you went on vacation sometimes, um, you would pick up a stick of rock. I don't know whether you, you know what that is, but it was a candy and it, sort of about this long, maybe maybe a, you know, a foot long uh, and round. And you'd get them from local seaside places. And if you broke them in half, there would be rings and it would say, you know, Blackpool or whatever it was you got them from in rings around the middle. And I've occasionally joked to people, I think if you cut me in half, you might find rings that say Banner of Truth. That's excellent. I tell you, uh, you talking about how, you know, you, you came to know about the Banner of Truth as a child. And um, I think it's appropriate at this point to kind of bring up uh, how I connected with y'all and how all this has come about. Because a friend of mine who lives in California, uh, we communicate occasionally. And uh, he's a little bit older than me. I'm 63. I'll be 64 June 1st. And he said, uh, you know, I said, well, you know, what we use at home for devotions between me and my wife and share devotions. And he said, Kenny, he said, I use a book. He said, it's Voices from the Past. Um, and he said, it's actually two volumes. He said, I have both volumes. And he said, they're really well bound. And he said, I've used them for years. And he said, if you were to look at them, he said, they're, they're filled with writing, you know, things that God says to me as I'm using the devotions. So that night as he was talking, I said, no, wait, give that to me again and I'll check it out. So I immediately wrote it down, looked it up online. I wasn't aware of your website. I just put the, the search in Google and went to uh, Amazon and uh, there they were. So I bought both editions and we've just been loving it. And uh, so I wanted to show this. I don't know if you'll show this up, show up on the camera, but uh, I tell you, they're really well done. And I've got both editions. Uh, actually Amazon right now is out of the hard copy, but, uh, something that you talk about on your website is that the binding is, is premium quality. And so for people who, who want to have a spiritual devotional life, um, digital is good. I mean, I have a Kindle, Kindle white, you know, where it's backlit and I, it's fantastic. You can have hundreds of copies of books and I have stuff on there, but when it comes to the devotion, I mean, this is really, um, you know, what I like because it's, it's tangible and redressable. So anyway, uh, that's how I came to know about the banner of truth trust and the banner you know, you're publishing is through your devotional books. And, but then from that, uh, something y'all do that I think is really wonderful is at the bottom of every page, it says, you know, who the writer was originally and where it can be found. And so then it caused me to go to the back of the book where you have all the authors that are included in here listed and I've just been eating it up. And uh, there's some of their sermons people have put to audio recording and through uh, YouTube and so forth. So that's my connection. And through that, I thought, wow, this would be something wonderful to just do. And I promised John I would read it, not comment, uh, and do a straightforward reading and include it on our podcast uh, side of things. And uh, it's been well received. But I'm excited about helping other people find out. Because I tell you, John, something you know, I, I sent you in the notes that I come from a strong theological background, conservative and Bible believing. We believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, the infallibility of God's word, and all the, 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 the doctrines. But yet, and, and a key professor, my key professor was devout, a, a, a certifiable Greek scholar. But yet in all of our studies and in, in my undergraduate and in my graduate degree, we never covered the Puritans maybe perhaps in just an overview of history, but never covered them. And I can't figure out why. And I don't think my professor had any type of a, a, a quirk towards the, the Puritans, but it is so foundational. And, um, you know, I just want your feedback on the Puritans and the impact uh, and that 
brought about the banner of truth and the desire to bring the writings back. But can you give me some insight? You know, I'm kind of throwing a lot at you, but just give me your feedback on that. Sure. Yeah. Um, I suppose, in a sense, you have to take a step back in history before the Puritans, actually, because you really need to get back to the Reformation. Um, if you look at the history of the banner, uh, the banner of truth, it started, first of all, with a magazine, actually, rather than with books. That was 1955. And that start was very much prompted by um, two gentlemen, Sidney Norton and Ian Murray, and they were in Oxford at the time. Well, if any of your viewers and listeners know anything about Oxford, you'll know that it is steeped in history, and it's steeped in some Christian history as well and, and Reformation history. And it, in many ways, it was probably the Reformation history that really was the prompting um, behind the banner. So you have to kind of go back to the likes of the, the Luthers and the Calvins on the continent, and then some of the um, martyrs um, in the UK in the, in the English Reformation as well. Um, and then step, stepping on from that, if you come forwards in, in history, you then start to hit the Puritan period in England. Um, there were similar, similar movements going on in other parts of uh, the UK as well. So we sometimes talk about some of the Scottish Puritans. It's arguable whether they're really Puritans if you want to be trying to define what a Puritan is. But hey, you know, it's the same kind of period. They had the same kind of theology and so on. So, you know, we don't get too purist about that. Um, but yeah, I suppose the, the Puritan period, um, when, when you read the Puritans, you have to be careful not to think they're all the same because they're not and there were differences so there isn't just a single puritan view of something whatever you know pick a subject whatever it is um whether it be sort of preaching or prayer or whatever there's not just one single puritan view but but there is something that marks out that period of history and and it's things such as a spirituality it's a bible knowledge it's um, it's a practical Christianity. It's living out your Christian life. Um, and, you know, again, some of these men went through tremendous persecutions. And if you look at the sort of mid to later periods of the sort of Puritan period, so really the sort of 1600s to the end of the 1600s, there's a period of history there, which within England, there was tremendous um, well, political unrest, religious unrest. Uh, some of these men were severely persecuted. You had the English Civil War during that time frame as well. And uh, so you had tremendous church politics taking place. It was the, the period when the Westminster Confession was, was written. Um, but then you have a period of time where, you know, men were ejected from their pulpits in 1662. There was a lot of, a lot of the Puritan men were ejected from their pulpits. You have a period of time where you had things like the Five Mile Act that prevented men um, coming within five miles uh, of, uh, of the town where they had been ministering. In fact, it was five miles of any, any town or city that sent a member of parliament up to parliament. And, and the idea was to prevent the nonconformists, the Puritans, from being able to preach where they'd been preaching and to get them away from their people. Uh, so there was severe persecution in that sort of period as well. Uh, so, you know, you had to live out your faith and you lived out your faith in danger of imprisonment very often. Um, so there was something very real, I think, about the faith and the theology of the Puritans. There was something very real about their knowledge of Scripture. And when you read some of these men, you realize just how much they knew about the Bible and how much they knew about, you know, experiencing the scriptures, the knowledge of the scriptures, but more than just the knowledge, experiencing God in their lives. Um, th there's a depth, I suppose, to things that, you know, when you read them, it really strikes you, and, and you understand th these men knew what they were talking about in a way that sometimes I, f I feel um, for us today in our sort of modern world, I think sometimes we're very um, flippant about our Christian lives and the Christianity. Um, our knowledge of Scripture often is quite poor compared to what some of these men 
had. Um, so, yeah, the depth of understanding, I think, strikes you. And if you look at some of the things um, that they wrote, the, the depth of writing, the, uh, we sometimes smile a little bit at, you know, you've got, um, I don't actually have it here with me, I've got on the bookshelf there, but you've got uh, things like um, precious remedies against Satan's devices. And you read precious remedies and the number of things the author then says, well, this is one of Satan's devices against Christians, and this is another one, this is another one, and this is another one. And you look at that book, and it just blows you away, really, by his understanding of the way that Satan seeks to attack us as Christians. Um, and, of course, he gives you, that's the title, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. He gives you remedies for the attacks of Satan. Um, so it, there's a sense in which it's the depth of their understanding, the depth of their experience, which I, I think often to a modern day reader, um, it's just beyond where we are at in our Christian lives. And it's where we need to get to. And that's the beauty of reading. them. That's where we need to be. Um, one of my favorite Puritans is John Flavel. Mm-hmm. And one of his favorite works, um, or favorite of mine, is um, his Mystery of Providence. And again, you read his Mystery of Providence and, and you get to understand his view of the working of God in our lives, the providential working of God in our lives. And it's such a deep view. It's such a rich view. It's such an all-encompassing view. And I think if you, if you read something like that and you start to get to grips with that, it, it enriches you in your, in your own uh, walk with God. Um, and it can really change your thinking about the way God works and the things that you know have happened, you can look back in the history of your own life, and you can give thanks to God for the ways providentially dealt with you in your life. Um, you know, and you can see events in your life and realize this this was God's hand at work. Um, and and Flavel's a, a, a big um, advocate of you know writing things down. So you know, keep a record of God's providences in your life and and tell people about it and when you meet other people be prepared to tell them look this was the way god dealt with me um this is an encouragement to to others to hear that so yeah there's just i guess a a breadth of knowledge a depth of understanding um and it's not just head knowledge and that's the key bit in a sense that puritans they've put it into practice so that their piety as it's sometimes referred to um, they put it into practice in their lives. And that's that's the thing that strikes you, I think, when you read the Puritans. You know, you saying that, it begins to make sense um, because my key professor was very devout, a uh, very godly man, but but more along the lines of uh, a little bit maybe of a stoic. And those who know I'm talking about, I don't mean that in any kind of an impunity, but he was just very... He came from a, a different denominational background, which I grew up Southern Baptist. He became Southern Baptist in response to what happened in his own denomination to where they left behind the authority of the scripture, the inerrancy of the scripture. And as a matter of fact, back when our denomination was going through such turmoil over uh, the authority of scripture and the inerrancy question, he was one of the chief architects of the doctrines uh, defending the faith and the, the, uh, inerrancy of the scripture. But at the same time, um, something I just distinctly remember him saying, you know, uh, you know, the Reformation solo scriptura, but coming through and I was under his study, you know, tutelage for a long time, but something that came through was almost uh, an absence of the spirit or hearing the voice of the spirit. And so therefore I think that you hit the nail on the head and it's, I'm making the connection now that what I hear from the people that I read uh, that you're publishing, that there's devout respect for the word of God, but at the same time, God at work in our ordinary lives, everyday lives, uh, through the promptings of the spirit that we can receive. And so as I became an older man and I began to think, but wait, I don't know how I read the scripture. And yes, it tells me, you know, here's the, the statutes and the limitations, et cetera. But yet I knew in my heart that at the end of the day, though, that for it to make it from the page and my mind into my heart and soul, that's the spirit's voice speaking to me. And so I I think that his response was more 
concern over that going too far, which we have in the United States to where, you know, people have gone to the absurd links of the spirit to where to the nullification of the word of God. So I'm, I appreciate that because it makes sense to me now. Yeah, I, I think, you know, there's always dangers, aren't there, in um, in any theological study. We can go to extremes with all sorts of different things. Um, and, and I think there, there is a, a danger of divorcing the work of the Spirit from the Word. And and we must never do that. Um, and, you know, we, we talk sometimes about the power of God's Word and the, the power of God's Word in preaching. And I think that's very true. But we should never divorce the power of God's word from the power of the spirit, because actually the, the word itself, and this is slightly controversial perhaps to some people, but the word itself, in a sense, is not powerful. It's actually the work of the spirit with the word that is the power of God. Um, and we must never uh, divorce the, the spirit from the word. Um, they have to go together, I think, again, in preaching um, you know, there's there's a danger today in some circles of divorcing the work of the spirit from preaching. And again, we mustn't do that. We have to hold the two things together. Preaching is vitally important, but, you know, we have to pray before we preach and we have to pray that God's spirit will be at work as we preach um, and that his work would then be done. Um, you know, ultimately, it's the work of the spirit that draws men to Christ, isn't it? Um, and we can't we can't ignore that. Um, so yeah, it's it's an important it's it's important to hold the two things together, the word and the spirit. Um, if you think about uh, you know the solas of the Reformation, you know we talk about faith and so on, but th there is that uh, that grace bit of one of the solas, isn't there? Um, and it's all of grace. Well, what is grace? Well, grace is, is something from God, isn't it? And it's a gift from God. And grace, in many ways, is the outworking of the Spirit, um, the Spirit of God to us. So, yeah, um, it, it's, yeah it's very important and, and something we shouldn't lose sight of. I suppose one of the difficulties in the last, what, maybe 40, 50 years, Certainly in our country here, um, there's perhaps been a, a swing away from the, the work of the Spirit in terms of, you know, the charismatic movement uh, almost be, became, you know, the only people of the Spirit. And and so it became um, perhaps people almost frightened to talk about the work of the Spirit. Um, but I think if you have a good doctrine of the work of the spirit then we should not we should never be afraid to, to talk about the work of the spirit because it's vital that's good and i tell you you know we uh you know i mean growing up southern baptist you know the spirit like you said really belonged to the charismatics and so as i age uh i find myself engaging more and more in in seeing the work of the spirit uh everything from praying for people like the scripture says to do and that the prayer of faith and we've seen people miraculously healed. I mean, certifiably miraculously healed um, someone, you know, with a cerebral hemorrhage that completely blew their brain and no EEG uh, in a catatonic state um, and was in it for months, but they couldn't transport him. It happened in the Dallas Fort Worth area. He lived out in the East Texas several hours away, but they couldn't transport him uh, because he was so heavy. He, pretty quickly developed a severe bed sore and they it's against, they can't transport you that way. And so we prayed and prayed and uh, he came back. He came back totally back to where, you know, he had been paralyzed, uh, blinded and was on a feeding tube and came fully back to where speaking had all of his memory. And the doctors had to say that you are a miracle. And so, you know, we absolutely believe in the work of the spirit. Um, and the guidance of the spirit, but it really stands out in the readings that I'm doing through uh, voices from the past, but then also the additional studies I'm doing now. Um, but I wanted to, to ask you, um, I was fascinated. I did not know until re researching for this show, uh, the connection with uh, D Martin Lloyd Jones. Can you talk about that for just a minute? And maybe for those of our guests who never heard of this man, but, I was fascinated that he was an integral part of the, the development at the very beginning of, of your organization. 
Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I, I've got happen to have. How about that? Um, a book on my desk. <laughs> this is volume one of a biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones, and it's written, you can just about make them out down the bottom here, by a gentleman called Ian Murray, Ian H. Murray. Um, and those two people were very influential in the foundation of the work of the banner. So uh, Ian Murray was one of the founding trustees of the Banner of Truth. And he, at the time um, when the trust was formed, he was actually an assistant to Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in Westminster Chapel in London. And uh, Lloyd-Jones was very encouraging uh, of the formation of the Banner of Truth Trust. He, he'd, been, um, he'd been encouraged by the magazine that had been started two years before the, the book publishing work started and had uh, been very um, helpful in advising and so on. And he, for those that don't really know anything about him, um, he was perhaps one of the uh, key, um, perhaps the one of the foremost preachers um, in the, what, the second half of the um, 20th century uh, in the UK. His influence spread beyond the UK, but again, you know, you think about it, so the 1950 to sort of the 80s, um, communication wasn't what it is today. Um, people didn't tweet and people didn't Facebook and all that kind of thing. Um, so I think things spread a little bit more slowly in that sense, but, but Lloyd-Jones was known beyond the UK, um, but he was perhaps one of the key uh, people in evangelicalism within Britain uh, that sort of period of time. Uh, most of his ministry, not all, but most of his ministry, the time that he's probably best known for uh, was within London in Westminster Chapel. Um, as I say, Ian's involvement with him was as an assistant uh, at Westminster Chapel. Um, and it was really the encouragement of somebody else in Westminster Chapel, plus then Lloyd Jones's involvement uh, that then really started the banner, the banner going. Lloyd Jones was quite um, influential in some of the book choices that were made in the early days as well. Uh, so there's a story told of Lloyd Jones discovering the works of Jonathan Edwards, for instance, uh, and Banner of Truth that republished the works of Jonathan Edwards. And, and I believe that much of the encouragement to do that came from Lloyd Jones. So there was a there was a heavy involvement um, in those early days, the time that the banner was in London, in particular, uh, with Lloyd Jones's encouragement. So the first books the banner ever produced, uh, when they arrived, they were delivered to Westminster Chapel and they were stored in the church there. Um, and Lloyd Jones apparently picked them up as they arrived, and, and one of the church meetings was sort of holding the books up and saying, you know, you need to read these books. So he was a great encourager of the work. Um, so yeah, well, and you, it's cool because of course, big D Martin Lloyd Jones fan and uh, his work on the book of Romans and for every kid who's studying theology and having to produce papers, uh, it was a, definitely a go-to set of books uh, on all of his other writings. And I actually came across an audio recording. It wasn't a video of hearing him preach. And, uh, I was shocked. I didn't know that, that there was anything captured like that. But uh, now, did you ever have a chance to meet him? Uh, I know it's way back, but uh, when he was living, I mean, it's just kind of a side note, but. Um, yeah, I did. Um, he stayed in our home um, at least once, if not twice. Uh, so, yes, I, I, I can remember going to Westminster Chapel to hear him preach. Um, but also he came to our church, to a church anniversary to preach on one occasion. Um, so yeah, I met him. I, I not not a lot. I mean, I wouldn't say I really knew him as such, but I did meet him a couple of times. Well, I tell I you, I'd have been in my mid-teens the last time I, I heard him preach at our church. Probably about fifteen, sixteen years old, something like that. Well, hang on. I'm oh, gonna I'm, I'm gonna put my hand on the screen and uh, get the touch from you because, uh, I tell you again, those of you who, and some people that watch this show aren't necessarily Christians, perhaps you're seeking, uh, but the person we're talking about is one of the giants of the faith of the 20th century and a masterful preacher, 
amazing author and uh, uh, really carried the, the cause of Christ forward. And uh, a lot of people throughout the globe today rely on his works uh, to encourage them and to continue to encourage them. So that's awesome. Now, also, I think I, I, I may even have some books. Ian Murray also is an author in his own right, isn't he? Yeah, so Ian wrote the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's two volumes, um, but he's written a number of other books as well. Um, so he's one of the people that uh, that was behind the formation of Banner of Truth, but he's also been somebody who's written quite a lot that we've published. Um, so he wrote um, a book on Spurgeon, Forgotten Spurgeon. Now, that book was, I think, um, well, I know was very influential with very many people. Uh, I've met many, many ministers who said um, how that book really opened their eyes. And I think one of the things with Ian is when he writes, um, a lot of people think of him as a, a sort of historical writer. So he's written things like the Lloyd-Jones biography, he wrote a biography of Jonathan Edwards. He's written some other biographical material. Um, but, but he never writes just biography. He's writing Christian biography. And more than that, he's writing theological biography. So you rarely read Ian without reading um, theology. Um, and one of the things with Spurgeon, so the forgotten Spurgeon was developed really in the 60s. Um, but Spurgeon, in his day, Spurgeon was, was obviously very well known. Um, and he was a Calvinist, was Spurgeon, and he was open about it, perfectly upfront about it. But uh, as you get towards the end of his life and then get in, on into the 1900s to the 20th century, you, you start to find that within Britain, that there is really a, a trend away from Calvinistic theology. Um, and you, you see it also with people like Ryle, within the Church of England, a similar sort of pattern there too. So by the time you get into the early 1900s, 1910 to 1920, that kind of period, you're really seeing people reacting against um, the Calvinistic theology that these men stood for. But of course, Spurgeon was a very well-known name. He, he preached in a big church, you know. So what you tend to find is that people would talk about Spurgeon. They were used to refer to him as, you know, the prince of preachers and this kind of thing. But they didn't like his theology. So one of the things that happened was there were a series of books published, which were sermons of Spurgeon. And the editors of those books edited out all of his Calvinism. Um, and it, there's a sense in which by the time you get to the 50s and the 60s, the, the the knowledge of Spurgeon in terms of his theology was completely getting lost and it was being buried in this image of a great preacher who, um, you know, was the minister of this large church in London. And so people would talk about, you know, this great Spurgeon without understanding what Spurgeon himself actually believed. So that was Part, I think, of the reason for Ian's book on the forgotten Spurgeon was to really say, look, this is, this is actually what he believed, and you need to understand that. And there's been a number of men who I've spoken to who that book has been very influential on, not, not in terms of learning about Spurgeon in, in just his biography, but in realizing this was Spurgeon's theology. But more than that, because Ian never, never sits with this is Spurgeon's theology. What he does is he says, this is Spurgeon's theology, but actually this is biblical theology. Um, and so what you then find is that Ian is effectively putting together a defense of Calvinism through the life of Spurgeon, but it's from the Bible. Um, and so whenever you read Ian, I think that's one of the things when you read him, you see uh, it's, it's theology through history. It's not just history. It's, it's soaked in theology. Well, I tell you, I, I had a lot of books, but when we moved to Tennessee, uh, the house we were buying in Texas uh, was next door to the house I grew up in, uh, you know, my whole life. My mom was still living. And so she had these extra bedrooms. So I'd taken over 
the bedroom I actually grew up in, and our church had gotten rid of these large library racks and we were remodeling and I thought, oh man, this is fantastic. So I brought them home and I had basically a library in one of the rooms. But when we moved, I moved all the books, but realized I'm not going to have the room for us, for them. So I gave them to a, a startup seminary here and uh, was very encouraged that they already had a robust library. I was shocked, but they were appreciative of the books. It kind of broke my heart because I'm a book lover and uh, I've got one shelf up here that's up high where it'll fit in this office and then books behind me. And I've got some more in a storage building out back. Um, but, uh, but I know I had some Ian Murray books and I may still be out in the, uh, in my storage shed, but I just don't have room for them in the house. So I couldn't go and pull out. I thought, no, I know I had some Ian Murray books, but I was just shocked to find out that these men were behind really the formational thoughts of your organization. Uh, but that that's kind of come up to the, the, the present really, uh, I, I think I want to bring out at this point, though, also um, that if you go onto the Manner of Truth website, and I'll have a link for that at the in the show notes. But one thing is clear is started by faith, um, not any money. Uh, the first magazine was published by some donations, and there was no promise of another magazine to come. And yet, then when uh, Dr. Jones. Uh, came in contact with that magazine. He got his uh, deacons to come together and help fund uh, part of the publishing of the next magazine. And so you can follow this path of faith to where as things began to unfold, the, the, the people in this organization, the banner of truth, they began to follow God's leadership. They were following his leadership and God just began to provide. And uh, so then we are where we are today to where uh, back in, uh, I can't remember the date I've got it written down, but, the point is in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, the Banner of Truth Trust connected with an organization here uh, that had similar goals. Eventually, that organization melded into the Banner of Truth Trust, and it became uh, the Banner of Truth Trust in the United States. So you want to pick up there, John, and, and just kind of tell me what's going on? Because you came stateside uh, with a presence here on the ground, and you built a building at some point there that was uh, designed for the, your needs. So tell me about from that point on. Sure. Um, I hope you can hear. There's actually a gardener at work just outside of my window. <laughs> so I hope you can hear me. It's a bit noisy in my office. Um, yeah, so we we had some connections um, into the U.S. Um, it would have been in the, in the 60s, I think. Um, it, there was a group of people who were in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. They, they were buying a lot of our books and, and taking them into America. And uh, one of our uh, member staff at the time visited and from that developed a relationship. And it was a relationship that eventually um, ended up with the Banner of Truth effectively taking over what was a thing called Puritan Publications at the time. Um, and, and that became the Banner of Truth in North America. And uh, in time, uh, there was a property built in Carlisle uh, that was then our home for, uh, well, I, I guess from the 70s, perhaps the late 70s, um, right through to just last year. So uh, last year, we, we built a new property in Carlisle. So we have a new office and warehouse in Carlisle. It's just across the, the town from where we were previously. Um, we'd basically outgrown the facility that we had, and uh, we we had a um, subsidiary storage facility as well that we were using. So we we got rid of all that and built a new facility that we, we trust um, that God will have us still around in 20, 30 years, and it will be our home for the next 20, 30 years. Um, so yeah, the, the work in the states um, developed from those early days. Um, it's a very important part of what we do today. Uh, we probably, in terms of um, revenues, so the sales of books, uh, something like 65, 70% of what we would sell would be in North America. Um, so it's an important part of the world for us in terms of the, the number of books that we sell. We do uh, two pastors' conferences in North America as well. We have an East Coast conference, which is usually held in May. So coming up at the end of this month, uh, that's in Elizabethtown, not very far from Carlisle. And then we also do a West Coast conference, which is in California. 
uh, and that's going to be in October later in the year this year. Um, and in a sense, those conferences mirror what we do in the UK. So we started a conference, uh, the Minister's Conference in the UK back in the early 60s, uh, and that is something that carries on through to today. Um, and so I suppose that the Minister's Conferences in the States were, were really prompted by the fact we were doing that within the UK as well. It was an integral part of the ministry. It was something we felt and do feel very strongly about. Um, we believe it's it's a real opportunity to minister to the ministers. Um, and it's it's an oasis in a sense of somewhere that some of these men, some and some ministers, you know, are, are really, you know, they're in the trenches and, and they're under siege at times, some of these guys. Um, and it's an opportunity for them to gather together and to be ministered to. Um, and we think that's an important thing. Um, so, yeah, so that, that's the US, as I say, it's, it's a big part of, of the work that we do. As you've served these 24 years uh, with the banner, uh, are there any just a few key things that stand out as far as in your work that, uh, you know, a fond memory or you feel like a milestone? Of course, let me say congratulations. I wasn't aware that you just completed a new another new facility in Carlisle. And uh, that's tremendous and very encouraging to hear that. Uh, so that's definitely a, a great accomplishment under your leadership. Uh, any other things that you just would like to share is really glory to God? Yeah, I, this, I guess if I, you know, I look back over my time here at the banner and there's, there's just a lot of things that, you know, I look back at and I say, that's, that's not us. That, that has to have been a work of God. And, you know, at, at a most fundamental level, um, we we get communication coming into the office more more by email these days than, than letters, but we still do get some letters. Um, from all over the world, people testifying to how Banner Books have influenced them, changed them, uh, influenced their churches and so on. And I sometimes see these letters coming in and I think, how is that? Because there's not very many of us. You know, there's not 500 people working for the Banner of Truth. We're quite a small organization in terms of the number of staff. And yet I see that the influence has been really huge. Far, far bigger than you would ever imagine based on the few number of people we've got. And I look at that and I say that, that's not because all our people are great. Now, you know, there may be some that are listening to this at some point. So I have to tell you, my staff are all wonderful. Um, I have great staff. Um, but, it, but it's not because we're all some kind of, you know, miraculous workers in what we do. We're just generally average people. Um, and God has blessed the work of the trust in a way that is really quite unusual. Um, so, you know, overall, I would say I look back over my time here and I'd say, yeah, that's that's really quite striking. There's an aspect of what we do, which is the book fund work. And within the book fund, um, we give away a lot of books. Uh, sometimes we use the book fund to subsidize things, depending what what we're doing. But a lot of the books will go to it'll be anything from um, theological students who are training for the ministry through to people who perhaps are taking up their first pastorate and we would give them a book fund grant of books um, through to third world um, operations. So it could be a missionary, it could be um, a seminary in the middle of Africa somewhere that's developing a library. Um, it could be uh, a minister of a church in India. Um, it could be an individual Christian in any of those places where basically they can't afford to buy books. And so we help them and we will send books to people. And again, I look at that and, and over the time that I've been with the banner, and as far as I'm aware, um, I think this is true of the history of the book fund. My predecessor was here for a good number of years too. And talking with him, I think he would have said the same. There's never been a time that we've had somebody approach us and ask us for a grant of books through the book fund that we've had to say to them, I'm sorry, we can't do that because we can't afford to do that. So again, you know, I look over that sort of period of time and it's more than my 24 years. It's really the book fund started around 1960. So 
what's that, 60 years um, of God's provision for the book fund. Uh, and again, that's quite a remarkable thing. Uh, and then, you know, I, I suppose some of the highlights for me have been the conversations with people where, um, you know, their life has been changed by books, um, and particularly banner books. And um, I remember one particular instance, uh, we were at a, it was a trade show in the States, and there was a gentleman who walked by, and he, he just stopped and he walked by, and he pointed at a, a book on the display that we had, and he said, that book changed my life. Well, of course, you know, I'm not going to let him walk away, am I, at that? So I just grabbed him and said, hey, you need to come and sit down and tell me about that, because you can't just say that. You've got to tell me about this. So we did, and it was a fascinating story. It was actually a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's a very small book. It's um, The title is Authority. He'd gone downstairs, got himself something to drink. He'd gone into his study. And he sat down and he thought to himself, well, if I read a book, perhaps that will help me to get to sleep. I mean, I often fall asleep reading books, so I know what he thinks. Um, so, so he said he looked around his shelf and he saw this little book there, Authority, and he thought, oh, I've, I've never read that. I'll read that. And he said to me, well, that was a big mistake. He said, because I, I, I got the book to help me fall asleep, he said, but I couldn't sleep reading that book. And when I finished the book, I couldn't sleep. He said, because it really opened my eyes to aspects in the scriptures that I'd never really seen before. And he told me that over a little period of time, um, his whole theological outlook changed. And he became convinced of the doctrines of grace. He became a thoroughgoing Calvinist. But that wasn't the position of his church. And so he said that he got to the point where he felt that he, in good conscience, he could no longer be the pastor of the church because he no longer believed what the church stood for in their sort of statement of faith. So I said to him, so what did you do? He said, well, he said, I didn't want to just leave because I thought that they should know why I had to leave. So he had a meeting of his church officers and he said to them, I've got some news for you. But before I tell you the news, I need to explain this news. And so he said he, he went through and he basically explained that I'd come to a new understanding of scripture. Uh, these are the things I now believe. This doesn't sit in accordance with you know what the church stands for and where the church is theologically. And I think in good conscience I should therefore resign. He said there was a silence. He said eventually one of the elderly uh, gentlemen there said to him, well, Pastor, it's funny you should say that because some of these things you're talking about are things that I've been thinking about myself for a little while. He said, so I don't know about anybody else, but I'd like to make a motion and I'd like to make the suggestion that you stay and you teach us um, because I think we need to learn these things. And that's exactly what he did. He stayed and he taught them and the church gradually reformed in their theology. And, and that's exciting. Um, and the trigger for that was that little book. Um, so there's lots of other stories I could tell you. We don't have time. But, um, but those are the sorts of things I think that over the years are the highlights to me. It's the people who've been affected. It's, it's you know, e and even things at the youth conference, to see some of the young people at the youth conference, to see how keen they are as Christians. Um, it, it's great to see. Um, some Some people have found husbands and wives at the youth conference as well that's also interesting <laughs> so there we go <laughs> well i tell you you know i'm getting ready to do a podcast on uh the year of jubilee and it's a foundational scripture isaiah 61 and then with christ when he read from the scroll of isaiah that day that he started his public ministry and it's a message of hope and transformation and uh against the backdrop of what we're seeing and, and, you know, here in the United States, we're just coming unraveled and everyone's talking about it. You know, who cares? Key uh, people in, in Christianity, uh, you know, if they're speaking out there, they're, they're being clear on, on how they see things and it, it's reality. It is where we are. And um, at the same time, because of the word of God and the reliability of the word of God and his faithfulness, it drives home the fact that regardless of how bleak things look, that once crisis is in the picture, everything changes. 
And so here, you know, with the United States, we're on the verge of losing the petrochemical dollar and the dominance of the, the U.S. dollar in trade. And uh, it looks very bleak, but yet the year of Jubilee says that, well, no, if God's in the picture, that that's all meaningless. And so the hope that comes back and that comes through uh, the scripture and then also of these godly men who just operated at a different level. And I've been trained by some very upper level people, but yet I've not met anybody that compares with the people that I'm coming in contact with uh, through the writings that you've introduced me to. And so I say thank you for that. And you're talking about the youth. And, and let me share a word with everyone who watches this video. It almost looks completely hopeless in the youth culture. But here's what I know, that if one young person comes in contact with the living God through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if one person comes to contact with God through Jesus Christ and a living relationship with him, that it's through that one person, perhaps, that the entire world can be changed. And it, it, it's power in Christ and not in numbers. And so I'm optimistic, and it's good to hear that your organization is investing in young people. And many times, those of us who are working in the faith, we think, well, what does my work count that I just have this Bible club at one of the apartment communities that we've done in the past? And you think, I'm, I'm reaching six kids. This is meaningless. But I'm always mindful that the transforming power of the Word of God and the work of Christ uh, is revolutionary, and it can bring <laughs> hope to the entire planet. And so I, I'm pumped. And to hear that you've actually uh, expanding in Carlisle, uh, I think is a very optimistic word. This has been very good, John. And I tell you, I'm so excited about the fact of being able to make contact with you and uh, the recording's gone well. Okay, wait. So can I, can I just respond to what you said about, you know, the one, you, you, it just takes one young person that could change the world. Um, because I think that's very true. Um, but I think there's another side to it as well. Um, and that is that there are times that we look back in history and we see individuals who God has used greatly. And sometimes we can focus on those people too much in the sense of saying, well, where is, you know, here in Scotland, for instance, where is the next John Knox? If only there was another John Knox, um, you know, where is the next George Whitfield? Where is the next, you know, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones? And I think sometimes we could focus on that too much and we forget the fact that, you know, we're not all that. We can't all be the Martin Lloyd-Jones. You know, there's many, many people in the UK today who preach faithfully week by week and they're never going to be the Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. But they are called to do what they do. And I think as individual Christians, that's the point, isn't it? We're called to do what we do, what God has called us to do. And we may never be known beyond the six children that you teach in the Bible class. But the point is this, you never know what God is going to do with that. You no, know, we do what we do and we leave the outcome of it with God. Um, you know, we, we can't convert those kids in the Bible class. God can, but we can't make any one of those kids, you know, the next John Knox. But God could. But if we don't do what we're supposed to do, then we're, we're letting God down, so to speak. And I think we need to understand that. We do what we do and we leave in God's hands the outworking of that. Um, it's, you know, if you think about children, I often think with children's work um, and young people's work, you don't know what they might recall to mind in years to come. And there's, there's, there's actually a wonderful example of this of a story told in the life of John Flavel um, of a man in New England who at the age of around about 100, I think, was converted. And he was converted in a field. Uh, he, he was sitting down in the field and remembering what he'd heard John Flavel preaching when he himself had been in England before he'd then gone to the New World. And he recalled a sermon that had been preached many, many years before. And God used the recalling of those words in that man's conversion. He lived something like another 15 years or so, and by all accounts showed all the evidences of a sound conversion. So again, you know, we do work with kids. We do work with young people. You never know when God is going to bring that back to, to them in their mind. 
Um, and I think there's another thing actually that's important, um, that it's the other end of life. Uh, I, I have, um, both of my parents uh, died with Alzheimer's. Um, but again, it's fascinating to see people who have dementia, to see what they can remember. And often what they can remember is things not from yesterday, not from last week, not from last year, but from like 60 years before, 70 years, 80 years before. And so in my father's case, for instance, I can remember as my dad's dementia was developing, um, he, he would pray um, at the end of a day, he would pray with my mum. And I can remember staying in their home um, and listening to my dad pray and realizing that, do you know what? Dad actually is praying the prayer book, the Anglican prayer book. He was raised with the Anglican prayer book. Um, and he could remember that. And when he got to a point where he, he could no longer in his own mind frame, you know, extempore prayer, he could remember some prayers from his youth and he could say that. And again, I think that's an important thing for us to remember that, you know, you, you sow the seeds in the young lives. Um, and, you know, even with a Christian, very often it's, it's what they hear in their younger days, that when they're old, when they're perhaps suffering from dementia, then they can recall these things that were just embedded in their brains so long ago. Um, and I think that's part of our responsibility, isn't it, is, is teaching the young um, it's one of the reasons, of course, why if you go back into the Puritan periods, they catechised the children. Um, you know, the catechising children was a great way of teaching them God's word, of teaching them the doctrine of, of Christianity. Uh, and memorising the catechism again, it meant that later on in life you could recall these things and it was helpful too. So, yeah. Um, but, it, but you're asking, I think, about one... One bit of advice. <laughs> um, yes, what, yeah. yeah, something that uh, you can leave our, our audience with, uh, just a, a word of encouragement, um, some advice. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I obviously work for an organization that's, um, <clears throat> that, you know, our day-to-day, -day, the majority of our work is related to publishing books. Um, so there's a sense in which some might say I'm going to be a little bit biased about what I'm going to say. Um, but I think whether I worked for a publisher or not, I would still say this. And I think I can honestly say that because of my history when I didn't work for a publisher. Um, and that is that I think it's important that Christians read. And if there's one bit of advice I could give to any Christian, and in fact, any non-Christian too, who's inquiring about Christianity, who wants to know more about Christianity, that one piece of advice would be read. And, you know, you have to think about what, what did God in his wisdom do? He, he wanted to make sure that the world knew about him. He wanted to make sure that the world knew about Christ. He wanted to make sure that the world knew how God works, how Christ saves, and the work of the Spirit. So what did he do? Well, he wrote a book. Um, so that was God's way of communicating his truths to us. So the first thing that we should do is read the Bible. Um, you know, and I think all Christians should be readers. And if they read nothing else, they should be reading the Bible. But I think... Secondly, that wherever possible, and again, I understand there are some people who find it very difficult, some people who perhaps can't read. Um, there are countries in the world where there is little access to information to be able to read and so on. But wherever possible, the second thing I would say is that a Christian should not only be a reader of the Bible, but a Christian should be a reader of books, books that help them to understand the Bible and books that help them to grow in grace in their Christian lives. Um, so I, I would encourage all Christians, if you don't have a habit of reading, develop a habit of reading. You, you don't have to wade through huge, huge books. There are plenty of, you know, the banner publishes some very big books. Um, but you know, you don't have to sit and read for hours and hours and hours to get through those books. You could sit and say, well, I'm going to develop a habit of 15 minutes a day I'm going to read something. Um, and it's amazing, actually, how fast you get through even a big book at 15 minutes a day. Um, so 
develop a habit of reading. I, I think it's so helpful. Um, you know, we, we consume a lot of things. Um, they used to say there used to be a program on the TV here in the UK, which was, I think it was actually called You Are What You Eat. And they used to look at people's diet and then say, because of what you're eating, that's why you are like you are, you know, whether you're skinny or overweight or unhealthy in some other way, you are what you eat. And I think there's a lot of truth to that in terms of what we consume beyond eating. You know, you are what you read. And most of us read things. We, we sometimes don't even notice that we're reading things. You know, you can be on the train or you could be on the public transport system or you could be driving the car down the road. And, you know, in the States, you've got these big billboards on the other side of the road. And, and you read those when you're driving along. And, and you're consuming information off those things. Sometimes it's very un, unhelpful information. Um, so that influences us. So how do we counter those influences from the world? Well, we, we feed ourselves. We should feed our minds. We should feed our hearts. And one way of doing that is reading. Um, and I think it should be an important part of, of any Christian's diet is, is reading. Um, so I, I would encourage, you know, if there's one thing to encourage people to do, I would say, yeah, develop a habit of reading. Well, amen, brother. I tell you, it has been such a pleasure to have John Rawlinson, general manager of the Banner of Truth Trust, join us today. I've been extremely encouraged, and I invite you to check out their organization. Go to their website. It's banneroftruth.org. And in closing, I also want to remind you they are a nonprofit. They make predominantly, they, they have their support through the sale of books, but they also do accept donations. And so check them out. I think you'll find them someone worthy of support. And I encourage you to do that. And so with that, we have another show wrap.